about the cold. Um, I'm glad that you made it out this morning. This morning, we are jumping back into our series, message series in the book of Acts that we were going through before um, Advent and uh, the holidays. And so uh, this morning, we are continuing the message series entitled Unstoppable, which is the exciting account of God establishing his church and taking the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And today we come to what is really a cautionary tale in many ways, meaning that it's here, it stands to warn us. There's a red flag for each one of us as we consider how to live our lives in this new year and, and for the rest of our lives. The title of the message this morning is Sin the Killer. <laughs> Yay. Um, I, I messed with a few titles and a, a few approaches this morning through the week and trying to ease it up a little bit, you know, be a little clever with it. But the more I, I grabbed hold of the scripture and more, more than that, it grabbed hold of me. I realized, let's just get right to the point. Sin, the killer. See, we were created for life, you and I, with purpose, life with purpose and meaning, life with joy and peace, abundant and full. And we are given that life by God Almighty through Jesus Christ. However, sin kills that. Sin is at war with that very life that God has given to us. And so when we were last in the book of Acts, we looked at just kind of a brief overview. The church gathered together in chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4 for, um, for prayer. Um, they were seeing some um, opposition, some persecution. The Sanhedrin and the religious leaders were beginning to oppress and persecute the church a little bit and the Christians in Jerusalem. They had arrested Peter and brought them before the, the leadership and John. They were getting annoyed, Scripture says, with this preaching about Jesus. And of course, this comes after the first few chapters. We saw the church born in the upper room, right, on the day of Pentecost. Now the Holy Spirit fell on these disciples, these believers, the great, the great scene there of the speaking in tongues and a great wind and tongues of fire. And God was doing his thing and he is establishing his church, empowering his church through the book of Acts here. And we see this early on the very beginning. So that you and I, so his church, could ultimately be empowered to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to be and to do. And that power doesn't come from us, but comes from him, his spirit. And so right at the beginning, the birth of the church here, as we get to chapter five, we're going to see a great truth that has been true since the garden before that, true um, today, and it will be true for thousands of years and as long as mankind is on this earth. And that is that sin destroys. Sin kills. Sin is not a popular subject uh, in the world. It's not a popular subject even in churches these days. But to really understand what is happening in our own hearts and lives, to understand what is happening in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our nation, and in the world, we have to understand the truth about sin. And so, Let's just begin here. Uh, we're still in chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 32 of chapter 4. As we look at sin the killer, the beginning of the 
early church. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. And what, the way we're going to do this this morning is I'll read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and bought, brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lead us this morning. Holy Spirit, give us understanding. Speak to us through the word this morning that we might be doers and not hearers only. In Christ's name, amen. The first thing I think we have to see before we see the effects of sin is God's initial plan, God's design is for us to live in community, to live in relationship. And this uh, description here of this church and how they were meeting each other's needs and sacrificing for one another and all those things, what a beautiful picture. It reminds us of that uh, in chapter two, the early church right there, the, the very beginning of it. And it continues. Uh, we start to see this mark of generosity, this, this mark of selflessness, right? Grace Outward focus on one another, providing one another's needs and people in each other's lives. Because we were created for community. We were created to be in one another's lives. We were created to walk together and, and to demonstrate the love that we have for God and His love for us to one another. I think sometimes we look at passages like that and we're like, man, that is so cool. They're, they're buying and they're selling their houses and land are given to one another, you know, but... Um, that was great, but that was different, right? They didn't have as much going on as we do. It was a different context. And, you know, I mean, what were they? We just have this image of these simple people walking around in sandals in the dirt, right? Looking at sheep or whatever and doing nothing. No, they had lives. They had families. Um, they had stuff. They had responsibilities. They had some wealth, jobs. But what they had just experienced was radical transformation by the love of Jesus. These were people who just a few months before this did not know Christ. They did not know him. They were living just regular lives like the rest of the, the people there in Galilee and in, and in Jerusalem. They were working hard, raising families, buying and selling land, trying to get ahead, just like you, just like me. But then they encountered Christ and everything changed. They heard the message that God was real. He had not abandoned them. He came for them through Christ. That's what all the commotion was about that they had heard surely around Jerusalem. This man who had come and caused such a stir and he was crucified and buried. They had found that he is alive. And he sent these disciples to let them know that it's true. The gospel is true. The message of Christ is true. He is the Messiah. And he came to restore them and to, to heal them of sin and death. To heal you and to heal 
me. Give us the, uh, the ability to have a restored, rich relationship, community with God Almighty and with one another. This relationships, this relationship that we were created for, first of all, is our relationship with God, right? With God and with one another. You can look at our little chalkboard sign out front. To love God and to love one another. That's what we were created for. So this intimate community with God. And Satan seeks to break that relationship up. He's always plotting and planning to put a division in that and, and help us and make us believe lies about God. He wants to break that relationship first and foremost. And that's, that's the most important relationship in your life. Every other relationship flows from that relationship. But secondly, our relationship and community with one another. God did not create you to be lonely. He did not create you to be a lone ranger. This early church looks a little radical, you know, because we're looking at it through the eyes of our culture. It was a little radical even for that time. But you and I are called to that type of community, not just typical friendships or this is not just a typical club that we meet on Sundays, a couple nights a week. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have been knit together to him and to one another. What a, what a gift. We are a gift to one another in this family that looks different than the fallen world to reach into one another's lives, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable to one another. What a beautiful picture here. But, as we, chapter 5, verse 1, the next verse. But, uh-oh, classic, right? There's always a but in there with mankind, with humans. This beautiful picture of God's design and our community and our relationship with one another. With one another. But, he says, a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Well, one, one thing I, we can say about Ananias, it looks like maybe he was a good husband because he did share it with his wife. Maybe that was not a good thing to do, giving her some guilt there as well. But what we need to understand is sin isolates. We were made for community and for relationship, but sin isolates. The picture here is of this community sharing and, and enjoying one another, bearing one another's burdens, caring for each other, serving and loving each other. And then we see Ananias and Sapphira, this couple that doesn't quite buy into all of that, right? Doesn't quite fully buy into it. And they have this secret between them, this plan, this, this trick. See, what sin tells me is, I don't need anybody else. First of all, it says, I don't need God. That's what my flesh is constantly saying to me. I don't need his standard. I don't need his opinion. That's our fall. That's the fall of mankind. And it's played out over and over and over again every day. And Satan, that's his desire is to separate us in that relationship with God. In the garden, the first thing that happened was Adam and Eve hid from God. The sin separated them. They wanted to be alone. They didn't want to be accountable. They didn't want to hear his voice or walk with him. It was a break in that communion, that relationship with him. But then we also see it in the human relationships. Their kids, Cain and Abel, that was a little dysfunctional, right? 
They had no use for one another again. Cain had no more use for Abel. It broke their relationship. I know I've shared this before, but it's so true in my kid's life, and I know in my life as well, I can always tell when something's up. When they're either doing something they know they're not supposed to do, or they're doing something maybe they know that I don't approve of, or whatever it is, not that they ever do that, but they start to not come around as much. We don't talk as much, even now. Won't get a phone call for a while. I'm like, something's up, something's up. That's what sin wants to do, it wants to isolate us. And so what happens is when the priority of my life is anything other than pleasing God and walking in Christ, I keep myself on the fringes of the community. I keep myself on the fringes of these relationships. I don't want accountability. I don't want vulnerability. I begin to develop even a judgmental spirit towards those who are. I don't need that. See, sin doesn't always result in just an obvious shame or guilt. It begins to, it begins to change. It begins to form into pride. And we take ourselves out from the protection and encouragement of real community and we walk in loneliness and that's not what we were called, how we're called to live. And that's dangerous. So sin isolates us, but also sin is selfish, right? At its core, sin is selfish. Ananias in Hebrew means God is gracious. Sapphira, the Aramaic name, means beautiful. This was neither beautiful nor gracious. This was selfish. Is it interesting? The first sinful act that we see recorded in the church, in scripture, is hypocrisy. What sin would you have highlighted in the church right from the beginning? What warning sign would you have held up as, as God is demonstrating who he is and who he's called this church to be? He highlights hypocrisy. You know, that's why a lot of people are I hadn't heard this till just recently. Church hurt. You heard that? You talk to people, they're church hurt, obviously. They don't go to church anymore because people there are hypocrites. They've experienced this, A, B, or C. They've done this or that. By the way, the church doesn't have the corner on hypocrisy. Now, it's true. We expect more. It's true. We, we should be different. But hypocrisy runs throughout our churches, throughout our society. And the sin of hypocrisy is a, is a dangerous one because it's a sin that can be hidden, right? I mean, by its very nature, it's a disguise that we put up, and that's dangerous. Jesus, some of his harshest rebukes were for religious hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 25, he says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about those that boast in appearance but not in heart. See, because God sees the heart. We may be able to trick one another. We may be able to hide and put on a disguise for one another, but God sees. And hypocrisy is selfish. It's all about me. It's protecting my image. I'm more concerned what others think of me, but not really exposing my heart. It's manipulation, and it is exhausting. Ananias wanted to be viewed as this spiritual giant. He wanted, to be, he wanted to be viewed as generous, right? He saw what Barnabas did and how everybody loved that. He's like, I want, I want some of that. 
And yet, in his heart, he really only wanted to stroke his ego and his pride. Hypocrisy needs to be exposed for the good of the hypocrite as well as for the good of the church. And that's part of why we press into each other's lives. That's part of why we, we have small groups together. We get together. We do D groups. We're, just, we're pressing into one another's lives more and more so that we can be more vulnerable to one another. We can expose our hearts to one another so that we can remove the mask with one another. See, Ananias and Sapphira had lied about their spiritual condition. And it's not about being perfect, but it's about pretending that we are. It's about lying that we are. We're not. So the question this morning I put to you is, are you a hypocrite? Well, in some ways we all are, right? We come to church and present ourselves as good. We don't let one another completely in. We don't make ourselves vulnerable to one another, right? We're not really being honest. Well, you may think to yourself, well, this place would be a mess. You know, as you walk, walk by somebody in the morning, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. Just imagine, say, good morning, how are you doing? Well, there's a girl at work that's just stressing me out. They're cutting back. I have a huge test this week and I don't really have time to study. I feel guilty because my relationship with my mom is bad, but whoa, whoa, whoa. Just, I say, how are you? You say, fine, we move on. But we're called to that type of community, that type of relationship with one another. Otherwise, we're being hypocrites. So how do I do that if I'm not, if I, I can't stop with every single person? Well, first of all, it's about making myself available to others. Listening. When I come to church, when I gather in a community, I don't come primarily only for me. I come to serve God through serving others and loving others. When you see others, do you think of the struggle that they're in? The struggle that we're all in? You begin to see others as a, an opportunity to be safe place. You want them to see you as a, as a place, a safe place that they can trust and share with you. Be intentional about pressing in. That's what this community was. It's about breaking down the veil, seeing one another as family, as an instrument of God in my life, to lean on one another. Listen, this world doesn't want that. It's weird to this world. It's so interesting to me when we come, when visitors come at different times. One of the things, especially from lost people, they come in and they see that between us and they say, there's something awesome going on here and I want to be a part of it. I, I, I want to be a part of this love that I feel here. We're family. We press into one another so that hypocrisy and dishonesty doesn't take over my heart and life. Not because you trust each other, not necessarily primarily because we trust each other, but we trust God. And this is what he's called us to do is to share our lives with one another, to let one another in. You know, 2024, I was telling the, the worship team about this earlier. This year, we're going to press into um, kind of organizing a little bit more. And, and we have these service teams where, you know, different teams like the worship team, the media team. We're going to have a welcoming team, uh, uh, hospitality, uh, children we're going to start this year. Um, opportunities for you to press in and be a part of serving. Not as unto man, but as unto God. 
God has placed you in this family to invest. Part of taking my eyes off of me is serving, is intentionally serving others. We can practice that right here. We can do it right here. It's an exercise here of being that kind of person, an outward-facing person, not a selfish person. We see that in this early church. They were opening up to one another, making themselves vulnerable to, to love and to be loved. Ananias saw what Barnabas got praised for, and he said, I want that. It was about, it was about Ananias. It wasn't about anybody else. It was about the appreciation that he got. But when we're living that kind of life, we're building our lives on a foundation of really greed. Greed for control, greed for comfort, greed for security, appreciation, respect. I'm operating not as to please God, but as to, to protect myself. That's not faith. And you may, you may think, well, I don't say no to God. Anytime he tells me anything, I don't really hear him say a lot. But, but see, here's the thing. When I say yes to worldly passions, that is me saying no to God. I'm prioritizing what I want. And in a sense, I'm telling God, get over it. I don't have time. I have too much going on. I can't open up. I don't, I don't need another friend. And here's the thing. God does not compete. He will not compete with idols in our lives. He tells us to intentionally lay them down. And when we don't, it causes us to isolate ourselves from God he doesn't leave, but we become callous the more we say no to the Holy Spirit. And we isolate ourselves from other Christians. If, we're, if you're a believer here this morning, you've been saved from self. That trap, that prison of just me first. The life of a Christian is no longer about myself. It is upward and outward facing. It's not hypocritical or greedy or selfish. Sin is always selfish. And that's a dangerous place to be. Look at verse 3 here in chapter 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Whoa. Sin is deceptive. Satan is active. And I know that's a hard concept, Satan, more than a concept. That's a hard truth for us to wrap our minds around today. I was just talking with somebody this past week and they were asking me, how do you, how do you, like, I don't understand demons and Satan and even angels. It just all seems like Jesus and God, I get that. But like, these demons, demons are real. Satan is real. He is prowling. Peter said to him here in verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart? That's why it's so critical for us to guard our hearts. Satan is coming for us. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This spiritual warfare is real. 
These attacks are real. Jesus told us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. It's important that you and I recognize that he is at work in this world and wants to destroy us. He wants to divide the body of Christ. He wants to render us ineffective in a dying, broken world. And so he's constantly seeking to divide us. He's constantly seeking to, to keep you on the, on the fringes. He doesn't want you leaning on others or others leaning on you. He wants to convince us that there are little white lies here and there that don't hurt anybody. Even if no one ever is hurt or finds out, it is a slap in the face of God. And see, the lie that Satan put in the heart of Ananias, the deception, was that Christ is not enough. Basically, that's what he's telling him. God's provision for you is not enough. If you trust God and do things his way and seek him first, it won't be enough. It's the very same thing Satan did in the garden. Remember when he talked to Eve, he said, in Genesis chapter 3, he said, did God really say you can't eat from the garden, from the tree? You will not certainly die. God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be... Satan plants those seeds in us to question God, to deceive us. But here's the truth. To live this life and it's to its fullest extent for you, the most joy, abundance of happiness, peace, excitement, and meaning, to come to your deathbed with no regrets and say, I have truly lived a full, abundant, meaningful life, is to surrender to the will and purpose of Jesus Christ for your life. First and foremost, that's an everyday thing. Because our flesh is constantly attacking us. Satan is constantly putting up roadblocks and seeking to affect us and steal our joy. In verse 34, back in chapter 4, remember it said, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him, him was his own. This is a beautiful demonstration of faith. Of putting my life in the hands of Almighty God and his sovereign will that he will defend me. He will provide for me. He is trustworthy far beyond anything I could ever figure out or achieve on my own. <clears throat> and so driven by deception, Ananias was operating in the flesh, right? He wasn't coming to worship. He was not coming in obedience, but the scripture tells us he was contriving in his heart. Here's a little sidebar that I'm not going to say a whole lot about, but the... the, the uh, the context of this passage is coming and giving. You'll not hear me preaching on tithing or giving financially a whole lot. But scripture says that financial generosity and faithfulness in the church is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of faith. And so we attack the heart. We go through scripture. We see what God says about the heart. Because when my heart is right, then, then abundance will flow from that. But a couple things here. First of all, part of loving and serving one another, part of being faithful and trusting in God is generosity and faithfulness with every aspect of our life. And that includes our finances. It's biblical. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. 2 Corinthians 9.7 Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now he's... It's not only giving financially in Scripture. 
It's giving of time and talents and serve, service. But it does include giving financially because it's an act of trust. And the reason that it makes us sit so tight in our seats is because it is very important in our lives. And that's exactly what God wants to do is release our grip from it, to hold our hands out. like, you put in, you take out as you see fit. Because God knows, he's made this a biblical principle because he knows that our finances, just like everything else, would become an idol if it's off limits. Everything else is okay, let's deal with that, but, but there's certain things that are off limits to God, but he calls us to trust him with every aspect, and that's part of serving, that's part of loving, that's part of trusting. And the point of this story was not that Ananias or any of us have to give every single thing to the church or even how much we're to give, but to understand that it's all his. And my desire to seek him first in everything and not believe the lie that I am the one providing for me is worship. It's obedience. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. And what happens is that we begin to compartmentalize our obedience, right? In verse 4, he says, Peter said, you've not lied to man, but to God. See, Ananias had separated, made little compartments in his life, his regular life, his financial life, his spiritual life. And we can do that because it makes us feel better about our sin sometimes because we can measure the effect and we can start judging. You know what? That's not going to hurt anybody. That's not a big deal because of the effects of it. It's important to know that our sin is against God. David said in Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Remember David committed adultery, all those things he did? He said, first and foremost, I've sinned against you, Lord God. And in God's eyes, there is no little and big sin. There's hypocrisy and greed, and then there's truthfulness and obedience. Ananias thought he was pulling the wool over these people's eyes, but in reality, he was telling God, I don't trust you. You don't have to think that. I remember a lady told me one time we were, I was leaving a church for another church, and I'd been there several years and loved the people. They loved me. Some of them said that anyway. Um, no, they did. We had a great relationship with them. And I remember leaving, and I remember a couple of little ladies cornered me one Wednesday night before we left, she goes, Steve, our hearts are broken. But you know what? We trust you. We trust you. And I don't know if I sounded like a jerk, or what, but I said, do me a favor. Don't trust me. Because I can make mistakes. Trust God. Because I could, I could pack up and leave before or after God's timing. I could do the wrong thing. But he is faithful. When I give of my time and talents and finances, all of a sudden, I'm not trusting in any man. I'm trusting that God is faithful and he's called me to be obedient. God, I trust you. All of us in every area of our life are either saying, God, I trust you or God, I trust me. And so this brings us back to the sin of hypocrisy. Yes, with one another, like I talked about, but with God. Am I a hypocrite to God? You know, sometimes in our lives, there's issues that we wrestle with. Is this a big deal? It's not really hurting anybody. 
But the real question is, am I doing everything as unto the Lord? Is there anything in my life that I can say no to? If not, it's an idol. I struggle with this at times with good things, my children, my wife, our relationship. Am I willing to lay them down on the altar that God would have his way? His will would be done no matter what that is. That's, that's difficult in my flesh, impossible. But it's a daily surrender. Surrender to the Lordship of Christ. He said, Ananias, you've contrived this deed in your heart. See, he had a heart issue. He had chosen to worship self. He was lying. He knew lying was wrong. But if nobody knows if they don't really need it. Some people didn't give anything, so at least I gave something. What's the big deal? His dishonest heart was the big deal. We see two sources of sin here in this passage. Satan, who's dealing with Ananias' heart, and his own heart, his own contriving, his own flesh. His heart was not set on knowing and pleasing God. As long as you stay on the outskirts, as long as we don't commit our lives and surrender our lives to, to being a part of the community that God has put us in and being a part of the relationship, making myself vulnerable to growing, to being held accountable, then I am still God. It's an interesting, conse uh, interesting consequence of hip hypocrisy and greed in this passage and it's paranoia. Paranoia and guilt, which is the opposite of peace of mind, which is the opposite of the peace that God gives to us. Peter said, why did you do this? He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? No one told you you had to do this, Ananias. No one said you had to give it all. God doesn't need your money. But what he wants is your heart. Ananias was not operating out of godly wisdom, but out of greed, out of paranoia, out of pride. I better say it's all of it because Barnabas did it and it's just going to look better. And he was contriving. He didn't know what to do. That's why sin is deceptive. It's confusing. This made me think this past week, I'm, we're doing, going on a college with Ruby. She's at that age now, spring semester of her 11th grade junior year. So we're starting to look at colleges and I'm trying to plan one. And I wasn't sure how the dates are going to work out. So I'm, I said, okay, this is going to be the trip. This is what we'll do every day. And I just I like to plan things out like that. And then I said, well, you know, it might not go exactly. So I did, I did six trips. So I have a page that has six different... <laughs> Six different versions of the trip, just in case. Some of us live spiritual lives like that. We're doubting, we're confused, we're constantly trying to figure out how close to the line I can get and still be okay. Instead of thinking, God, how can I please you in everything? How can I have true spiritual discernment? True peace. Ananias had convinced himself that he had to lie, when in reality, he did not have to lie. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, John 10, 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. There is a war going on. There's a battle going on in your heart, in your life. 
for your trust, for your affection, for your attention. And one is the way of life, the way of truth, and one is the way of deception. We come to this final part of this passage in verse 7. He says, it says, After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. I bet. Sin destroys. I guess they weren't singing uh, I Surrender All at the invitation that day because I'm not quite sure that's true. This is the third miracle in the book of Acts in the church. You know, the first was the healing of the lame man. Besides Pentecost, it was the healing of the lame man in chapter 3 by Peter and John. The second was the building being supernaturally shaken in the last chapter as the church prayed together for boldness and for faith. The building shook, and now this, the third, Ananias and Sapphira being struck dead. We have to be careful. I hear some people sometimes, man, I wish we would just have the miracles like they did in the early church, and maybe not. Why was death necessary? Why was this necessary, right? Listen, all through the book of Acts, we see this is a critical time in the life of the church. God is establishing his church. He is protecting his church he is demonstrating what it means to be the church. He's working out his plan. He's demonstrating the power and consequences of sin. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Jesus came to free us from that, right? To bring us to life spiritually. The message of the gospel is the gift of God of eternal life, overcoming <clears throat> sin and death. However, the consequences of sin are real every day in all of our lives, Christian and non-Christian alike. Proverbs 14.2 <clears throat> says, there's a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Galatians 6.7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. When we allow sin to have reign in our lives, when we, when we keep certain aspects of our life off limits to God, it's a dangerous place. We spend our life dealing with the consequences of sin, maybe not struck dead like this, but God is not mocked. Are you taking serious obedience to Jesus in every area of your life? Listen, sin... And a simple definition is living outside the will of God. That's in every circumstance, in every situation. So the fire that we should have in our bones, the desire that we should have first and foremost, is to know the will of God for our lives and be, live in obedience to it. 
Have you surrendered every area of your life? I saw a, a sign this week said, you repent enough to be forgiven, but have you surrendered enough to be changed? We wrestle with things over and over again because we don't surrender. We get to a place where we stop wrestling. Like, you know what? That is not so bad. But every now and then, those places give a little pinch of conviction in my heart. And maybe I've found a little safe place in my heart or mind where I, where I don't really allow the Holy Spirit to have influence there. I'm holding back a portion of my life. Listen, that creates all of these things, that isolation, deception, selfishness. The sin of Ananias was holding back from God. What are you holding back? Because when you come to Jesus, we come to him surrendering all. Then slowly, sometimes we start to take things back. When, it, when we talk about sin, sometimes people think, okay, this is going to be on sin. It's going to be on lying, cheating, stealing. The sins of the heart, sins of our motivation, the sins of what we hold back from God are dangerous. And this message is not a message of judgment or threats. It's here for us to read, yes, as a cautionary tale. For willful sin and rebellion, the result, consequences of sin. But ultimately, it is a message of hope, of grace. God has made a way for restoration. He has freed us to not have to be bound by our sin. We as Christians are living in His grace. In verse 33 of chapter 4, as it described that, that community of believers, it says, And great grace was upon them all. God is a gracious God. He has made his point in the early church. He is making his point today, but he is a God of grace and of love. A picture of the beautiful gift of community we've been called to is one another. So don't hold back from God. That's demonstrated in this community a lot of times. Don't hold back from God. Open your life to him. Make yourself vulnerable to one another. And ultimately, this is a message of salvation. We need not be destroyed or live a life of deception and shame, right? But a life of grace. Today, the response is to lay all your cards on the table, to agree with the Holy Spirit and surrender every corner of your heart. It's not about being perfect. God knows that you're not perfect. What he calls you to is to be honest and to lay it before him, because you can do nothing about your sin. He has. Salvation. This morning, as I close, I, I wonder if you would, you would say to the Lord, God, all I have is yours. I'm tired of carrying my own burdens. I'm, I'm tired of pursuing my own dreams and plans. I want you to take it all. Show me where I'm holding back. Show me where I'm pretending to be what I am not. Holy Spirit, tear down the walls I've built in my heart. I believe that what you have for me is greater than anything I could ever contrive or build or find for myself. Help me to see those you've placed around me for this journey of faith. Help me be vulnerable and be available. 
because I trust you and you ultimately, Christ ultimately in every area of our lives as Lord is what we all need. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your love and grace. Thank you, God, that you saw us in our sinfulness. You saw us in our brokenness. You saw us in our rebellion and you did something about it. You took the initiative, Lord God. Jesus came, lived a perfect life, gave his life on the cross, shed his blood that we might be forgiven of our sins and justice would be satisfied. And he rose from the grave, conquering death, that we might live in freedom. God, forgive us for when we begin to take back parts of our lives. Forgive us when we hold back parts of our lives. Lord, may we lay it all before you this morning and ask you to, to show us, Lord. Show us where we have put ourselves back on the throne. Lord, we, we trust you this morning. Draw us closer to you and work through us to show the world your love. In Jesus' name, amen.